0: Welcome to Burning Bush Baptist Church online. Special shout out to all of our veterans today and just want you to know that we appreciate what you've done and some of you what you are doing. So a few years ago, my daughter gave me a book and the book is entitled The Christian Atheist. Strange name, right? The basic premise of the book that is written by Craig Rochelle is this. People believe in God, but live as if he doesn't exist. We all know that an atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God. So it seems like it's an oxymoron, doesn't it, to kind of put those terms together. An atheist doesn't believe in God, but obviously a Christian does believe in God. So how can you kind of fit those two terms together? Let me see if I can illustrate. Let's say that tomorrow morning, you go over to the Chattanooga Airport... And you catch a direct flight on American Airlines to Dallas, Texas. They run a direct flight. And as you get on the plane, you find yourself sitting next to a businessman by the name of Greg. Greg has just spent part of the end of the week and over the weekend doing his business. And things didn't go very well. And he's a little bit discouraged and he's a little bit cranky. And so you guys just kind of start making a little bit of small talk. You talk about the weather and such as things like that. And then he begins to talk to you about his business. And he's really frustrated and his sales are way down because of this whole COVID-19 thing. And he tells you, you know, I used to could, could make a sale and close a sale as easy as you can push a button and make an elevator door close. He said, now I can't even negotiate a transaction at a yard sale. And then he says this, I don't believe in God, but if I did, I know he has it in for me. You sense an opportunity here to to maybe say something positive in a spiritual way. And you're trying to be empathetic. So you kind of begin by saying, Well, you know, I do believe in God. And then before you get any further, he just cuts you off. He tells you that he doesn't pray. He doesn't go to church, he doesn't read his Bible, he hates those insincere TV preachers who say, God, with a thick accent. Well, you're kinda taken back by this whole situation. And and then he asks you with sarcasm, do you believe in the seven day account of creation? And before you can even say anything, He starts in another barrage of anti-Christian sentiments. How that Christianity is for people that are weak and, and just for people who need a crutch. And then finally he says this, no disrespect, I just think Christianity is a bunch of BS. And then he changes the subject. And he begins to talk about the Dallas Cowboys. He lives in Dallas. He wants to know what you think of the Dallas Cowboys draft because everybody's been very positive about it, how you think the Cowboys will do. And then the rest of your two-hour plane ride is just spent kind of flirting from one subject to the next. Finally, you, the plane lands in Dallas. You guys walk through the gate together to go your separate ways. And you just kind of both kind of say that you hope the economy gets better and you hope this whole COVID-19 thing goes away soon. Greg is a Christian atheist as we would define it. Now let's say Friday... You get on a plane in Dallas to fly back to Chattanooga. This time, a young lady sits next to you. She's very outgoing. She's also very nervous because she tells you she doesn't fly very often. She's very chatty and she tells you that she is headed to Chattanooga to attend a friend's wedding. She's kind of bummed out about it a little bit because she says it was really going to be a big event and now this COVID-19 thing has happened and it's really just scaled everything back. But at least they're going to get married. And then just because I guess she's nervous, she just starts chatting about all kinds of stuff to you. She talks to you about the difficulties that she has with her live-in boyfriend who doesn't want to marry her. Then she kind of talks a little bit about her frustrations with her divorced parents, and just kind of randomly she mentions that she always has trouble balancing her checkbook, and she's just chatting away, When all of a sudden, she pauses. And she's looking down at your wrist, and she notices that you have this leather bracelet kind of thing on that has a, the universal fish symbol for Christianity. And she says... Are you a Christian as she looks at your bracelet and kind of points at it? And you say yes. And apparently this gives her permission to kind of tell you about her spiritual journey. She says, you know, I accepted Jesus Christ when I was 15 years old at a youth camp. And I was so excited about it and I wanted to tell all of my friends about it and I knew my life was gonna change. And she just kept on as she was describing to you what was going on in her life at that time. She would just try to drop in these Christian phrases like God is good and and God told me. And then she said though after about a year, her friends didn't really understand her and, and it was just getting really hard to be a Christian and eventually she kind of dropped out of the youth group and, and nobody really came and checked on her and then she would begin to tell you about the dark details of her life and then she said, you know, that yes, she prayed and especially she prayed that, that her boyfriend would become a Christian because then maybe he would marry her And you could see a tear just kind of roll down her cheek. And then she summed up her faith journey. I know my life doesn't look like a Christian life should look. But I believe in God. Welcome to Christian atheism. Where people believe in God. But live their life as if though God does not exist christian atheists exist everywhere they attend baptist churches they attend presbyterian churches they attend pentecostal churches they attend catholic churches they attend churches with steeples on top and they attend churches with contemporary architecture they attend churches where the preachers say god they attend big universities and big colleges they are of every age, race, occupation. Some even read their Bibles and pray every day. And you know, there are many different ways that Christian atheism kind of shows up. Maybe not all of these fit all the Christian atheist, but there are these different ways. Let me just share a few of them with you. Some believe in God, but they really don't know him. Some believe in God, but they trust more in money. Some believe in God, but even though he's forgiven them, they're still ashamed of their past. Some believe in God, but they won't forgive others. Some believe in God, but they pursue happiness above everything else. Some believe in God, but not enough to think that he is in control of this COVID-19 mess. Some believe in God, but they don't believe in his church. And I could just go on and on with this list. But this morning, I want to focus in on just one of these traits. It's this particular one. I believe in God, but I'm not sure he loves me. Or you could say, I believe in God, but I'm not sure... I am his child. So in this series, we've been called, we've called Talking to Your Kids about the important stuff. We've just been kind of talking about different aspects of things that we need to talk to our children about. And of course, just about everything we've talked about applies to the big kids, the grown-ups too. And this morning, I want to talk about Identity. The fact of who we are in Jesus Christ. That we are his children and that he does love us. And the reason is this. Identities get hijacked all the time. You know, we live in a culture where you're you're hearing about stolen identities all the time. You see advertisements for things that are supposed to help with not letting people steal your identity. You hear about it on the media. You read stories about people whose identity has been stolen and it destroys their life. But it's not just a societal problem. It's also a spiritual problem. And you know who's trying to hijack your identity in a spiritual manner? It's Satan. And he works overtime. And he uses all kinds of tools to keep you from knowing who you are. First of all, he uses the opinions of other people. He uses the opinions of your parents. He uses the opinions of your peers. He uses the opinions of your coaches. He uses the opinions of professionals. He even uses the opinions of your partner. And he's always trying to get you to listen to other people's opinions so that that will shape you and form you who Satan wants you to be rather than who God wants you to be. He also uses hurt and pain to shape you. You know, a lot of times hurt and pain kind of dulls, but I don't know in some situations if it ever goes away. And so he uses that, he starts in one area and he just kind of moves it through your life and it can profoundly affect your identity. He also uses media. And certainly in the day and age that we live, he uses social media because we're always comparing ourselves, right? We look at social media and we look at their, what seems to be perfect life, right? Why can't I have that? Why can't I go to that place? Why can't I be that pretty? Why can't I do what they're doing? And so there's this, that, that comparing kind of thing, and you feel like that you're being left out. Satan uses anything he can to mess up your identity. He suggests thoughts in your mind, which we often refer, refer to as temptations, and he says stuff to you. But do you know what the number one way is that I believe that Satan Hijacks your identity. This is what he does. He keeps you from discovering your true identity and Jesus Christ. And he gets you to believe lies about yourself that you tell yourself. And you lie to yourself all the time. You tell yourself that certain things are good and certain things are bad. But here's the thing you are not really a very good judge of yourself because none of us can be objective when it comes to looking at ourselves. I mean, obviously, we're all very interested in ourselves, but we tell ourselves, like, I'm uncoordinated, I'm dumb, I'm not pretty, I'm not handsome, I don't have the things that they have. And you're just always talking to yourself. And there's this constant stream that just is always flowing through our mind. I mean, right now, there's a stream going through your mind. And this is what it's saying. It's what Pastor Dennis is saying this morning. Is it important enough for me to listen to him? I mean, that's exactly what you're thinking. Do I need to switch channels? Do I need to play with my video games or something? That's going through your mind right now. Some of you probably already even had thoughts like, I'm getting hungry. See, there's that stream and it's just always going through your mind and it's always talking to you. So how do we know who we are? How do we understand that? How do I know how God made me? There was a philosopher by the name of Pascal and here's what he said. The only way you're ever going to know yourself is by knowing God through Jesus Christ. The only way we are going to truly understand ourselves is through Jesus Christ, through the death of Jesus Christ. And this isn't a new idea with Pascal. This is what the Bible says. Look over in the book of Colossians chapter 1. It says, for in all things, so everything, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. God is saying through Paul, everything, absolutely everything, starts in Jesus Christ and finds its purpose in him. And the only way you're ever going to understand your true identity is in Christ. You know why? Because he created you. You didn't create you. God created you. You know that little phrase here, in him? Do you know how many times that's found in scripture? 79 times. 89 times the phrase, in Christ, is found in Scripture. Do you know how often the word Christian is found in the Bible? Twice. Twice. Yes, that that's the phrase that we usually use to describe ourselves. But when you look in the Bible, the term that is described... And used to describe followers of Jesus Christ or believers in Jesus Christ or disciples. The common term is in Christ. I'm in Christ. Now, we don't have time to go through the the 168 passages, I guess it would be, if we looked at them all. But I just want to kind of hunker down today in one particular passage, and it's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And as I read this passage this morning, I want you to notice all the verbs, all the things that God has done for us. Just follow along with me here on the screen. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts off with this prayer. Who has, here's one, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, verse 4 begins, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance, here's another one, to adopt us into his own family by bringing himself to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. And then it continues on. So we praise God for the glorious grace, and here's another verb. He has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son, notice something else, and forgave our sin. And then he closes out, he has showered us, his kindness on us, along with all wisdom and understanding. You read that passage, it's like, wow. It's like the Christian's birth certificate. It tells all about who we are. It's like taking one of those DNA tests that you can mail off and find out all about you. It's like that. It tells you all about who you are. And you can tell that Paul thinks this is awesome too. Because in the first two verses, he just kind of gives this introduction. And then in verse three, he just kind of launches into this with all praise to God. And it's a prayer It's really what we would call a doxology today. And it's like all praise to God. And it's like he's saying, I can't help but praise God because of all these things that he's done for me. Because all the things I'm about to tell you is why I'm praising God, he says. And this morning, we're just going to focus in on three of those phrases. I'm chosen, I'm loved, and I'm adopted. I'm chosen by God, I'm loved by God, and I'm adopted by God. Those are three things that we all want in life. We all want to be chosen, we all want to be loved, and we all want to be accepted. That's another way of of saying adopted there. And we already are. And here's a key to this. Verse 4 starts out with the phrase, Before the world began... You see this is like the knockout punch for Paul. He's saying, God had designed this whole entire thing before he even created the world. God chose me, God loved me, God adopted me before the world started. We all know how much it, how, how wonderful it feels when somebody likes you, when somebody loves you, when somebody cares about you. But can you just just think for a moment, just imagine, because this is so true, that God, the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, loved me before he created anything else. That's an incredible thought. And Paul, it's like you can just tell he's overwhelmed with this thought. I mean, that God designed the world and and thought about Paul and thought about all of us before he even made the world. And so Paul starts in verse 3, and I didn't read it all, but he rolls right along through verse 14 without a single period in the entire Greek text. It's 202 words. Now, I can't speak for anybody else that's watching this morning, but if I would have written a sentence in college, high school, grad school, or whatever, 202 words, my English teachers would have covered that thing in red ink. They would have put, run on sentence, run on sentence, run on sentence. But Paul, inspired by God, writes this 202 word sentence, and it's like it just kind of snowballs as he thinks about what God has done for us. The fact that God created the world before time began, he chose us. So let's notice these phrases. Number one, we are chosen. Notice that phrase that I mentioned earlier to you, in him in verse four. We were loved and chosen in him. Why did he choose us? He chose us because we're the faithful and we are the ones who believe. We are the ones who responded. And I look at myself and I say, you mean to tell me that he chose Dennis McNulty before he created the world? And the same goes for you. Plug your name in there. He chose you before he created the world. In fact, let's just do something. I'm gonna ask you, we got a phrase up here. I want you to put your name in this blank. And I want you to say it out loud at home or wherever you're watching from this morning. You might need to change the were to was, but let's just all say it together. Put your name in there, was loved and chosen in him. So here we go on the count of three. One, two, three. Dennis McNulty was loved and chosen in him. Man, that ought to make you feel good, right? That's exciting stuff. So if you look for your identity in other people, you're not gonna find it. You find it in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we find out who we are and what we were made for. According to this verse, when did God choose you? As I've said four or five times, before the world was made. If you grasp that, you're a believer, you should never have trouble with self-esteem or identity again. God chose you millions of years before the world was made. God chose you. He chose you and then created a universe to provide a place for you to live. He chose you before he made the first tree, before he made the first ocean, before he made any rocks that exist. He chose you. You know, I've been blessed to uh, visit a lot of places in the United States, some, some very pretty places. When I was younger, my dad was in the Air Force, so did a lot of traveling then and been fortunate to travel some as an adult. And I've been to some beautiful places. I've been to beaches on both oceans. I've been to the Adirondacks, spent some time up there when I was younger. I've been to the Smokies. I've been to Hawaii, uh, Yellowstone, and, and, and the, list, the list could go on. Just Just gorgeous places. You know, a few years ago, I got to visit Yellowstone for the first time. And as you know, it's kind of a geological cornucopia. And, you know, when you're there, you're walking out over extinct volcanoes and lava pits. And, and it's really cool. And scientists say that this stuff has been millions of millions of years in forming. And as a creationist, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. But it has been, in any sense, at least thousands of years. And when, you, when I've walked out on, on a volcano or a lava pit or something, that's pretty neat. But do you know God chose me before that was ever formed? And he chose you too. He chose us before anything else was created. He chose you before he made the moon and the stars. That shows you how important you are. I mean, being chosen, isn't that like the antidote to to every child's nightmare? You know, you go to recess or PE class and somebody says, well, you two are captains and you pick the team's. And you're just sitting there hoping, wow, I hope that I'm not the last one chosen. I mean, that's shameful and and it's dishonor and they start picking people and the crowd's getting smaller and smaller to choose from. And you're like, oh, please don't let me be picked last. I mean, that's the nightmare that we all have. Nobody wants to be last. But you weren't chosen last by God. You were chosen first. First. That's how much God says you matter to him. Before any bird, before any animal, before he chose to make anything, he says, I'm going to make you. That's the foundation of our identity. The second thing I'd like you to notice is that he loved us. He chose us and he loved us is the phrase there. You know, I think that's a reality that a lot of people can kind of articulate that God loves us, but I don't know that many, that, that everybody, even though they articulate it, they really take it to heart. I mean, most of us are very familiar with, you know, phrases like God loves us and John three sixteen, and we've seen it on bumper stickers, and we've heard it in hymns, and listened to it on contemporary uh, Christian radio. But I don't know that everybody has taken that to heart. It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to understand it in our hearts. It's a problem for the Christian atheist who believes that God loves maybe sometimes others, but not necessarily themselves. Isn't that strange? I think sometimes the line of thought goes, why would he love me? There are six billion people on this planet And a lot of them are more talented than I am. A lot of them are smarter than I am. More gifted, more beautiful. What does God see in me? I mean, doesn't it kind of seem like surely God has better things to do in a planet with six billion people than to pay attention to me? And we aren't the first to think that. Moses, when God told Moses, hey, I want you to go get my people out of Israel. I want you to go talk to Pharaoh. You remember what Moses says? Who am I, God, that I should tell Pharaoh to let my people go? King David experienced this too. He said, who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? And King David is described as a man after God's own heart. We are in good company when we don't think we're good enough for God. You know, this whole concept of, of God being willing to love us. I think if you're a parent, you kind of understand how God can love so many at once. My firstborn, my daughter Bonnie, when she was born, you know, being that firstborn, she was a people pleaser, and she was the classic daddy's girl. We did everything together, and yeah, she probably had me wrapped around her little finger. And we just had a blast. And then my son Austin comes along later and they are kind of opposites in, in, in so many ways. And yet, I found love in my heart just as much for Austin as I did for Bonnie. Three years later, Travis comes along and again, I find just as much love for Travis than later Haley and then later Sean. And there's been enough love in my heart to love all of them equally and as individuals. That's how God loves you. He loves each of us individually. As crazy as that sounds, it's the same kind of love that we have for our children that our Father God has for us. Before God started the world, he had us in mind. And we are the focus of his love. Sounds kind of strange because a lot of times we're not that focused on God, are we? But he is always focused on us. On us. There's never a time he's not focused on us. He knows our highs, he knows our lows. He knows our joy, and he knows our sadness. He's always focused on us. You might say, well, is there ever a time God doesn't focus on us? Listen to Romans chapter 8. He says, I am convinced that what? Nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Nothing, neither death nor life. And he goes on to start describing it. Neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. He continues on in verse 39. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to, what? Separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. And why can we not be separated from the love of God? Two things. For one, it's eternal. And secondly, it's unconditional. God doesn't say to us, I'll love you if. God doesn't say to you, I'll love you because. Those are conditional. God's love is unconditional. He says, I love you, period. I love you in spite of the fact that you don't always love me because God is love. God's love for you is based on who he is, not what you do. It's not based on your performance. It's based on his character. You can't make God stop loving you. It's unconditional. It's consistent. You never have to wake up in the morning and wonder, does God still love me because of what I did last night? You don't have to ask that question because his love is unconditional. It's not fickle, it's not unpredictable. God doesn't give you a hug one day and then the next day slug you. That's not how God works. You never need to ask, will God love me? He always will. You know, we kind of get ourselves in trouble when we begin to doubt God's love. I think sometimes we've been trained to think of, of love as something kind of conditional and temporary. It's like the young girl who, who got a picture of herself, she framed it, and she gave it to her boyfriend. And on the back side of it, she wrote this little note. She said, I love you more than love itself. I am yours forever. Love always. Ashley but her unconditional commitment kind of had a postscript down at the bottom it said P.S. if we ever break up I want my picture back because it's the only one I have and you know that concept kind of extends into adulthood too I've sat down with couples and listened to wives lifelessly and listlessly say I don't love him anymore God's love is different it never goes away you can't be separated from it you can't make God love you more and you can't make him love you less he just loves you period and anytime you doubt God's love and you start thinking well I know more about God I know more about what to do with my life than he does how's that working out for you No depression, no frustration, no discouragement in your life working out pretty good for you? Probably not. We always get into trouble when we doubt God's love and when we doubt God's wisdom. But here's more. Here's the third one. Not only are we loved by God and chosen by God, the third one is this. We are also accepted by God. Over in verse 5, the next verse from the verses we were looking at earlier, it said, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. God adopts us to himself. Do you realize what that means? Do you realize the impact of that statement? God doesn't say, you know what? You can be a subject in my kingdom. He doesn't say, you can be a servant in my kingdom. He doesn't say, okay, you can be a friend. I mean, all that would be nice. But he doesn't say that. You're my servants, but you're just not servants. You are also what? My sons. That's our, he, We're his sons. That draws us as close to him as possible. Who are you closest to? Your family. Being in the same family is as close as you can get. And when you become a Christian, you become a child of God. And Paul says, you can cry Abba, which means father, but it's a term of endearment. So while it means father, it really means more like daddy, dad, papa. It's a term of closeness. It's a term of affection. Listen. Listen. We are in his family, and that means some other things. We have family rights. It means that we are his children. When you're somebody's child, you have some family rights. You know, we spend our entire lives trying to be accepted, don't we? You wear the clothes you wear because you're looking to be accepted by someone. Most likely, you drive the car you drive because there's some group that you want to be accepted in. You choose your friends because you want to be accepted. Sometimes we choose the food we eat because we want to be accepted. The things that we say on the internet, we want to be accepted. That's why everybody's looking for likes. Everything you do is out of a massive need that says, accept me, accept me, accept me. We all want to be accepted. Well, you're already accepted by God. Now, How does Jesus make us acceptable to God? What does that mean? Well, you see, there's a problem. God's perfect. I'm not. You're not. So, how do imperfect people get to heaven? Because heaven is a perfect place. Well, something's got to happen, right? So, God said, I'll take care of the problem myself. I'm gonna send my son and he's gonna live a perfect life and he's gonna die for your sins. This is called grace, it's called redemption, rescued by God, other theological terms like justification, justified. It's just as if I never sinned when I accept Jesus Christ, believe that he came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died on a cross For me, and rose from the grave three days later. God says, You believe that, I'll make you clean, and you'll be perfect in my eyes no matter what you've already done. I sent my son to die for you. And, folks, when God accepts us, we don't need anybody else's approval. We don't need anybody else to tell us that we're okay. I don't need anybody else's approval to be happy. I need the approval of one person, God. You know, sometimes people don't like us. Sometimes people don't like me. They don't like you. But you know what? When God loves us, it's one of the most liberating things to be able to say. It doesn't matter what other people say about me because God loves me and God accepts me and I don't need anybody else's approval to be happy. And while people are stewing and spewing and criticizing you, it doesn't matter. Because God loves you. You're chosen, you're loved, you're adopted, you're accepted. So who cares what other people think about you? Let's real quickly talk about some application this morning. Parents, I think there's something that's kind of really important. We have an incredible responsibility to make sure we don't destroy or distort the image of God that he has placed in our children. Parents, teachers, educators, coaches, spiritual leaders, we have so many opportunities to make sure that we don't distort the image of God in our children. God has created all of our children a certain way, each of them different. They are wired differently. And as parents, we need to build on that. We need to help our children see how God loves them and how he's made them. You know, sometimes good kids make bad decisions. And we can jump on them with with both feet and we can take them to the ground and we can threaten them with everything in the world to take away from them and everything that's gonna happen to them if they don't do what we think they're supposed to do. And we can distort if we're like that over a period of time, how God has made them. We've got to be careful about that. God forgave us, and we have great opportunity to fully offer grace and mercy as we help our children understand their identity in Jesus Christ. Secondly is this. The most important person or people in your life determine your self-esteem Make sure that person is Jesus. Let me talk to parents again about this, and then we'll kind of talk about some implications for adults with this. Research tells us over and over that your self-esteem and your identity and your self-worth is largely determined by the most important person in your life. Parents, before your children are old enough to understand Jesus, you're that person. When they are young, up to five, six, seven, or whatever, and of course, it continues on, but especially in those early years, you are the most important person in their life, and you have everything to do with their self-esteem, their identity, their confidence, and their understanding of who Jesus is. Then as we get older, when you become an adult, Jesus Christ needs to be the most important person in your life. Does that make sense? He loved you before he formed the world. You're chosen, you're forgiven, you're accepted, you're loved, you're valuable, you're forgiven, you're priceless. He loves you even when you mess up. That's who you really are. Jesus Christ needs to be the most important person in your life. That is your true identity. You know, when I started this morning, I mentioned that book by Craig Rochelle. And there's a couple little paragraphs in there that I want to share with you. And they're not written by him. They're actually written by somebody else. But I think they really speak to what we're saying this morning. So this person that he's quoting went through the alphabet. And for each letter... Talked about all the people that God loves. I don't have time to read all of them to you, but I'm going to start with the A's. It says, God loves beginning with the letter A. God loves artists, astronauts, aerospace engineers. He loves accordion players, ankle biters, animal rights activists, and accountants even during the tax season. He also loves acrobats, athletes, and airplane pilots. God loves people from Alabama, Alaska, Africa, and Albania. God loves absent-minded people, awkward people, assertive, authoritarian people, antisocial people, and aggravating people. How about the bees? God loves babies, babes, boys, bankers, and band leaders. He loves ballerinas, Bible readers, biology teachers, bird watchers, bus drivers, even including the bad ones, God loves bookworms, bachelors, botanists, bowlers, baby boomers, and boomerang throwers. He also loves beekeepers, blondes, brunettes, and even people with blue hair. God loves boars, the beat up, the burned out. God loves bosses, braggarts, bag ladies, bartenders, brats, people with braces, bushmen, and even Baptists. In short, there's nothing we can do to earn God's love. He loves us and gave his son for us. We can't make him love us more, and we can't make him love us less. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we come to you today. And Father, we thank you for such an encouraging passage. And you can just sense Paul's excitement as he writes these 202 words. And he just kind of talks about our Christian DNA. All the things that God has done for us. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us unconditionally. Father, I just pray this morning if there's anybody that is tuning in today and Father, there's never been a time in their life where they fully understood your love, I just pray that you'll be real to them today. I pray that you might help them to make that uh, decision or Father, to contact somebody they know that uh, has made it before. Father, give them clarity. Help him to reach out whatever way that looks like. Father, thank you for choosing us, loving us, adopting us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.